we continue uh, marching our way through the Old Testament book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus 11 today. That should be on page 53. If you don't have a Bible with you and would like to grab one, there should be a couple in the racks in front of you. And on page 53 is where you'll find it. And if you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible but need one, feel free to take that one with you. That's our gift to you. Exodus chapter 11. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight. I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. God in heaven, as we come to this passage, a very difficult, a very hard word, God, I just ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to make it plain, to help us understand it, to help us know what it is that you want us to believe and know what it is you want us to do. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word, the reading and the hearing of your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt you have been, uh, you've been down the card aisle, the greeting card aisle at, the, at your local store. I don't even know if they have Hallmark stores anymore, but they used to, right? And you know, on that aisle, you'll find all manner of cards there for all different kinds of occasion, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day, etc., etc. And in most places, you'll even find kind of like the, the religious tab, right? 
in some places you'll find multiple religions. Um, but, right, so, so if you wanted to, and I, and I get these cards and I'm thankful for these cards, right? But if you want like the congratulations, you can get like congratulations religious or uh, Mother's Day Christian, right? And if you were to pick that card up, I, I trust that you can even imagine in your mind what that card already looks like, right? Usually there's a, there's a pleasant scene on the front, kind of like a Thomas Kincaid knockoff. Um, you know, there's a stream there, there's trees there, and usually some verse about how pleasant the Lord is or how um, his grace and his mercy uh, and so on and so forth. Or for my, uh, for my Instagram friends, right, when, we, uh, when you see a graphic, and we do this sometimes when we make graphics here, right, I prefer kind of these majestic nature scenes, right, tall mountains with mist, and my graphic designer is looking at me like, no, that's not cool, right, uh, the sun-dappled path. I grew up in the 90s, okay, like nature speaks. So anyway, um, like the sun-dappled path or like a huge, like the huge waves and, and usually some kind of understated verse about the, the power or majesty of God, right? Well, Exodus 7 through 12, what we call the plagues and the Passover, is not Hallmark card territory. And so one thing we have to say, even as we come to a passage like this that talks about the killing of firstborn children, we have to acknowledge that oftentimes our Christian experience is very limited to what we would like to see, or our religious experience is very limited to what we would like to see. And so when we, when we send someone a card or when we make a graphic, it's usually, you know, it's usually a very pleasant um, or moving image. Um, but then you come to here, and I'm going to argue this morning that actually we need passages like this to round out our understanding of who God is. Um, I had opportunity this week uh, to go to a leadership conference at a large, well-known church, and, uh, and they very intentionally want to create an experience that, um, that makes people feel comfortable in church. And there's a lot to be commended about that. And I hope if you're here for the first time this morning, uh, and if this is even the first time or one of the only times you've ever darkened the door of a church, I certainly hope that our people have made you feel comfortable. But that is a very different thing than what we often see, what we see many times in the scriptures, that oftentimes when we come and meet God or when we see God, it is not it is not a warm, fuzzy experience. Rather, it is a terrifying experience. And a challenge for those of us who do believe, and not just can we glorify and magnify and say God is good when we see the towering mountains or the sun-dappled path, but can we even glorify and honor and magnify God in the bloody Nile and in uh, destroyed crops. Uh, these are the things that we see through the plagues. And um, so I'm going to attempt this morning to unpack some of that and work through some of that. And this is a, a hard thing. It doesn't, not everything in the Bible fits in, um, in a Twitter statement. Some things need a lot more work. And so as we go into this this morning, um, 
we just we're going to need a lot of God's grace uh, to help us understand. But what I hope we'll see as we go through it is that God will be known. That's part of the purpose of the reason that God is doing these signs and wonders in Egypt. He will be known and he will be glorified both in judgment and mercy. Now, that statement right there may even be hard to swallow. Usually we tend to think, right, God is glorious in his grace. And he is. God is glorified in his mercy and he is. What could be more glorifying to God than him stepping down out of heaven to rescue us out of our sin in which we can't do anything? But we also have to acknowledge from not just the Old Testament, but from Genesis all the way through to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, that in the New Testament too, God is glorified and will be glorified, not just in his mercy, but also in his judgments. Let's unpack that a little bit. I think there's some, and, and as we do this, I want you to see that the death of the firstborn, this last and final blow, that's what the word plague means. It's actually one of the first times it's used. We commonly say plagues, right? We refer to these plagues on Egypt. But really, the, the text doesn't use that word a whole lot. just uses it right here. And when we think plague, we think disease or pestilence or something like that. When the, when the Hebrew uses that word, it's like a strike or a blow. So think of a hard punch to the gut, right? That what God says to Moses is yet one more strike against Egypt, and this will be the last one. So this is, this is the culmination of all of the wonders that God has done in Egypt. This is the last blow. This will be the, to, to not not lighten it, but this will be the killing blow. This will be the blow that sends Pharaoh to his knees. Um, so a lot of what I am going to say, we've said in some form already. Neil last week uh, preached through the plagues. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but whenever I have Neil preach, I always give him like the hardest assignments. Like, hey, Neil, I'm going to need you to cover like six chapters of the book. Go. Um, and so... Neil's mad at me, but um, so a lot of what I'm going to say today has already been said, um, but we're going to say it again because it's important and because the narrative says it again and again. And the first thing is this, that what that what God is demonstrating, the way that God is bringing glory to himself in this is first that he reigns supreme. That's what he wants the Egyptians to know that's what he wants the Israelites to know. God reigns supreme. Um, the, the technical way we say this is that God is sovereign. He is the ruler. He is the king. There is no other like him. The buck stops with him and nobody can stop him. Right. And you can already kind of get get a picture of which side of that you want to be on. Which side of that unstoppable force you want to be a part of? God reigns supreme. So I immediately think of two different, two different scenes from two different movies. The first is from a movie that came out in the 90s. I think it was the 90s. The Mummy. Um, Brendan Fraser was in it. And there's a scene in that movie towards the beginning. The, the mummy has been set loose. He's woken up and they're, like he's terrorizing these people that are in the basement of a pyramid. Yeah. So... He comes upon one guy who actually ends up being his servant. 
and it, and he's about to and he's and he's like stalking towards this you know pitiful little servant dude and it looks like he, and he's about to kill him and so what the what the servant does is he takes out all of these religious symbols that he has around his neck and like so it would be the cross it would be the star of david the crescent of islam he's pulling all of these symbols out and he's saying different prayers that go with them and what's he doing he's trying whatever works whatever whatever will get this mummy to not kill me that's what i'm going to go with and that's not all that uncommon, right? That's actually, a, that's, that's typically the way we think about religion. It's certainly the way that they thought about religion in Moses' day, right? That you have all of these different deities, and if this one doesn't work for you, try this one. And so you can see there a, a parallel to our own day. We do the very same thing. Not just religiously, though that certainly happens, right? Like, well, you know, I kind of... I kind of don't like really that that side of uh, of, of Hindu, so I'm going to kind of borrow from this over here. And you know, I don't I don't care for that, so I'm going to do that. Right? We we kind of do that. It's called syncretism, where we we put it all in a blender and we push the button and we drink our religious concoction. All right. Um, the second illustration comes from a much more modern movie, Batman versus Superman. Um, this one is once it goes in the red box, I can say anything from a movie I want to. So if you haven't seen it yet. You've missed your opportunity because I'm, I'm not going to spoil the end for you. <laughs> Superman dies. All right. Um, <clears throat> so there's a, there's a scene in that movie where uh, Lex Luthor is taunting Superman. And he says something interesting. He says, God is tribal. God is tribal, basically meaning that, that what, whatever we call God is really just confined to us. And it doesn't go any further than that. And again, that's not a very uncommon notion from where Moses is. In the ancient world, the gods that you worshipped were your gods. They were the gods of Egypt, for instance. And they went as far as Egypt went. And so whenever, if, if your empire conquers my empire... You would say that your gods are better and stronger than my gods, right? So your deities, what you worship, was confined to your kind of cultural boundaries, to your, to your empire, to your country. And when one beat another, it was basically your gods were beating the other, the other team's gods. That was how things worked in the ancient world. God was viewed as tribal. What God is doing here in Exodus is counter to both of those notions. God is not tribal. And he is not just one part of a lineup that if you don't, that if, you, if it doesn't work for you, try something else. God demonstrates repeatedly that he is supreme. That he alone is in control of creation. That he alone is powerful above and beyond all the other false gods that we worship. And he's shown that again and again. For instance, in this case, what we've kind of seen is through each, in each one of the plagues that God does, he's, he's basically swatting or striking a particular deity in Egypt, right? We saw that with the frogs and with the Nile and with the, uh, with the sun. Egyptians uh, thought a lot about the afterlife. They thought a lot about death. They, so much so they actually had two gods, 
dealing with death, right? One was Anubis, and he was kind of the god of embalming, and he carried you into the afterlife. And then there was the, the god, the major god Osiris, and, and he was also the god of the dead. He was kind of the, he ruled the underworld, so to speak. And even uh, if you go, if you were to, if you were to go to Egypt on an expedition and you were to find a new tomb of a pharaoh that had had recently not been discovered, you would see all of this gold and treasure and everything else. And the reason they would do that is because they wanted to be ready for the afterlife, right? They wanted uh, so 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 royalty would stock up all their wealth and they would put it around their tombs. We're kind of like, really? Um, you're just going to bury that in the ground and leave it there? But in their minds, they weren't burying it in the ground. They were taking that with them into the afterlife. And what we see in this last plague is that God basically says, Death, yeah, I, I control that too. I'm in charge of that too. I can say, when you die. And in fact, he does, right? Later on in the New Testament, we're going to read uh, in the book of Hebrews that it's appointed once for a person to die. God even rules over death. Death is no surprise to him. In fact, he is the bringer of death in this case. God says, that's my power too, even over death. And in this, and I want to be, I want to be careful here. I don't want to be flippant. In this, there is a severe mercy. And that sounds, that's a paradox, right? Those are two words that don't really seem to go together. Severe and mercy. But when we live under false gods, right? Whatever, so here's kind of the way, here's kind of the way the world works. Whatever you worship or whomever you worship, that is what you serve. You, you bend your life, and this is, Neil pointed this out last week, and I think it's so important to say it again. You bend your life around that thing or person. And I'm not just talking about ancient world, I'm talking modern world. So if you worship your children, you will bend your life around your children. Their success and their failure will afflict you hugely, right? And so you'll do everything you can to keep them from failing because really that's your God and you don't want your God to fail. We do this with our marriages, we do this with our work, right? Uh, I don't want to be seen as a failure in my work because if I am, then my God has failed. My life is cracked and ruined and so on and so forth. And so as God tears his way through Egypt, he's exposing all of these lies that these people are building their lives upon. He's saying, yeah, you think that has power? It doesn't. I do. You think that has power? It doesn't. I do. And each time he does that, he's revealing to the Egyptians where they ought to be looking for significance, where they ought to be looking for meaning and for life and for hope. And that hurts, doesn't it? Many of you have experienced God's severe mercy in your own life, where maybe you didn't even realize that you were worshiping a false god, say, your money, your wealth, until he takes it away. And then you realize just how much of your trust and security went into that, 
And he brings you back to himself. That's what we mean by severe mercy. God will be recognized and glorified as the sovereign, as the he who reigns supreme. Second, God reigns over circumstances and people. God reigns over circumstances and people. Let's just, I want to take a, a quick jaunt through the passage here and see, you see what I mean? Verse 1, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon, excuse me, one more plague, I will bring upon Pharaoh. Afterward, he will let you go. When he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. Verse 3, the Lord gave the people favor. That word favor means is the same word for grace. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that means that God made the Egyptians look at the Israelites in a favorable way. Verse 4. God says, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. There will be a great cry. You see, God is working not, not just in our present circumstances, but God actually is able to say, here is what will happen. God is working in the future. He is affecting things in the future. It's not as if God is responding just to the present. Sometimes I think we picture God as responding just to what's happening in the moment. That God, like that something happens and, and we're like, okay, God, uh, what are you going to do about it? And God's like, oh, I don't know. Let's try this workaround over here, right? But that's not the God of the Bible. I remember being, uh, I was at university uh, at Alabama uh, when 9-11 happened. Um, and I was a, I was a new Christian. I'd just been recently converted, still wrestling through a lot of these things. And, uh, if you were alive for that day, of course, you remember what a shock to the system it was. So many thousand people dead in almost an instant. And I remember sitting in a, a Christian meeting and listening to a guy speak. And he said, uh, those planes flying into those towers does not surprise God. He is not caught off guard by that. He is not in heaven shaking his hands going, man, I had plans for all those people. What am I going to do now? Now, that opens up a pretty uncomfortable side, right? Because it kind of forces you to ask the question, are you saying that God is responsible for all of the bad things that have happened to me? Are you, are you saying that God is the reason I've been abused? Are you are you saying that God is the God is the cause behind civil war in Syria and and the thousands of refugees and refugee camps? Are you saying that every awful thing that's ever happened, God planned it that way? And this is where I want to be careful. This is where we can't do quick and dirty theology because this is not. This is not neat and tidy categories. But there's, there's a couple of ways, I think, that we can approach this. Actually, there's more, there's more than one. So if you're here this morning and you're, you're, kind of, you're coming out of a, a non-religious background or, or you're like, I, I don't even think 
God exists, so this conversation is irrelevant to me. I'm not going to speak to that this morning, right? If this is one of the key wrestling points for why you don't believe or do believe, I'm not going to be able to go into that this morning, but I do want to offer to you that I am available. Uh, I'm good for free coffee, free lunch, so... Um, Talk to me after that. Like, I know this is a major deal, and I know it is a major deal breaker for some of you. So come and let's talk about this. Let's unpack some of these things. I can't do it in 30 minutes, um, and probably if I did, most of you'd be asleep. So what I want to do is I'm going to speak primarily kind of in the religious context, right? Primarily within the Christian context, within the Bible, there's really two ways you can approach this idea of God's sovereignty both over good and bad. And number one, the reason, uh, one reason you give, you, or it has been given, and there are many people, uh, many smart people, much, people much smarter than my, I talk for a living, smarter than me who say this. It's, it's, uh, it's human free will. Right? The reason that bad things happen in the world, yes, God is king, but he allows space for human free will. Um, so, why I don't hold that position is because, first, I don't think it's consistent with the full scope of the Bible. I don't think it's consistent with the full scope of the Bible. Uh, and, I'll give you, and I'll give you some reasons why. Let me give you a few passages. Uh, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Daniel 4.35 all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? Romans 9, moving into the New Testament, Romans 9, 15 and 16, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So there are just a few places in the Bible that I think support this idea of God being sovereign, not just over all of creation, but even when it concerns the human will. We're going to get to the objection to that in just a second. There's another reason why I have a hard time with the a free will position, and it's this. I don't find it to be logically consistent, or I should say consistent with the logic of the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. When you get to the book of Revelation, God, uh, Jesus actually is speaking to a man named John, and he's giving him a vision of what is to come. He's... Because John is in the midst of a pretty severe struggle. He's actually in prison because of preaching Jesus. His friends are under the knife because they've been preaching Jesus. And so what Jesus does is he comes to John and he says, I want you to let all the churches know that this is what's going to happen. And I want you to know that so that you can hold on. It's going to be hard and it's going to get harder and I want you to hold on. And so I'm giving you a vision to let you know that I've got it under control. It's not going to seem like it. 
When they're throwing you in jail or when they're cutting your head off, it's not going to seem like it, but you need to know I'm holding the reins of history. Friend, there's no way in my mind, there's no way to get there. There's no way to get to that end if, not, if God is not controlling the means. What I mean is that if there is, if there is a free agent out there who can or cannot do the will of God, then we can't get to the goal. Right? There's no way to cross the finish line if God is not sovereign over even the human will. So that's what I mean by the consistency of biblical logic. I realize there's some other passages. Again, I'm good for free lunch and coffee. We can talk about that. Okay? So, those are, so, so that's one way to approach it. The other way is to say, really, in fact, because if you're going to say, God is king, but I have a free will... That just that leaves you in a tight that I don't know how you get out of. However, I will say and happily affirm that God is sovereign and humanity is responsible because I believe that the Bible teaches both. And I will dem- and let me demonstrate that with Pharaoh right here. OK, um, look at the very end of uh, of chapter 11 there. Uh, verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. All right? Throughout this whole experience, um, from the very beginning in chapter 4, I'm just going to read to you all these passages because this is, this is a reality we have to grapple with. Let me read to you all of the times it talks about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. All right? The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Exodus 4, 21. Exodus 7, 3 and 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Exodus 7, 13 and 14. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Exodus 7:22. the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. Exodus 8:15. when Pharaoh saw that there was relief from a plague, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8:19. then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8:32. but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Exodus 9, 7, Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people, of, uh, let the people go. Exodus 9, 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Exodus 9, 34 and 35, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Wait a second. Let's pause right there. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet, Moses, the scriptures, can attribute Pharaoh's hardness of heart to his own sin. Let's keep going. We're going to come back to that. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 10, 1, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Exodus 10, 20, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go. Exodus 10, 27, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Exodus eleven ten, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Exodus 14, 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Exodus 14, 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Exodus 14, 17 and 18. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Nineteen times Exodus refers to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Three times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Six times, just a general reference Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And ten times, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What are we making of this? What do we, what do, we do with this? Let me read to you from uh, Kevin DeYoung. We see that God was sovereign over his heart, but not in a way that removed his own personal responsibility and culpability. Pharaoh was held responsible for his actions and activities because they were his own actions. It was a divine hardening according to a rotten will, not in opposition to a humble disposition. Pharaoh, in his hard heart, continued to do what he wanted to do. So, here's, here's the critique of the position that I hold. If God is sovereign then there's, what, what's the point, right? It's basically fatalism, whatever will be, will be, and so on and so forth. What the Bible teaches is not fatalism, right? Because what we're seeing, because the, 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 well then, we're all just puppets on a string, right? We're just, we're just mindless robots doing whatever um, God has foreordained for us to do. I want you to notice something. Pharaoh has had ten opportunities to respond to God's warning. And he has not said, he, he has not been of a humble disposition, right? He, hasn't, he has not said, but God, I really want to be a good person. Would you please stop hardening my heart? He is no robot. God has not taken Pharaoh's arm and bent it behind his back and said, no, you will you will bow, right? You, you are going to punish the Israelites, right? God is not making Pharaoh do something he doesn't want to do. He is giving Pharaoh over to his own hardness of heart. He's giving Pharaoh over to his own sin. That is how sovereignty works. And so that means that Pharaoh can still be held responsible for his own sin. So responsibility, human responsibility, comes underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Um, we probably need to move on. Love to talk about that more. Probably needs more than one lunch or coffee. Um, God reigns over circumstances and people. All right? And then finally, God reigns for his people. Let's look at uh, 
Again, we see this especially through the latter part of the plagues, but let's look at verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord. All right, so when, I think we've talked about this, but when you see that, thus says the Lord, that's, uh, that's what's called a messenger formula. And actually, it was really common. Pharaoh's messengers did this all the time. If you were a messenger or a prophet for, for a particular king or deity, what you did was you just said, thus says Pharaoh. And then from that point forward, you don't get to take any license or liberty with the message. You just say exactly what the boss said, right? So Moses is doing that to Pharaoh, right? Moses, this sheep herder from the desert, is standing before the most powerful man on the planet and is saying, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So in the ancient world, in Egypt, gods, uh, excuse me, dogs were scavenger animals. All right. They were not viewed very highly. Uh, they were kind of akin to the modern day rat. Right. So some of you give me a hard time for not wanting pets. Just being biblical. OK. Um, dogs were viewed as scavenger animals. Right. You didn't want them around. You kind of kicked them. You moved them out of the way. God is so in control of the situation, he says, even as I'm doing this against Egypt, not even, not even the lowliest animal will growl, will cut its tongue at any of my people. Such will be their favored condition. There's a, there's a force field around my people. Now, come back next week because we're going to talk about what that force field is. We're going to talk about the Passover, okay? There's, there's lots of mercy in that that we need to unpack and talk about. But what I want you to see, at least from this passage, is God is not only supreme. He's not just reigning over people and over time, but he reigns for his people. He takes care of his people, those who, by grace, are part of his family. Because let me tell you something. There was nothing about the Israelites that made them special. In fact, we're going to find out later on, there is something, but it's in God and not in them. We're going to find out later on that their behavior is very similar to that of unbelieving Egypt, right? Um, the reason God favors Israel is because he made a promise to a man named Abraham. And he told Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your offspring. And so, whoever blesses you, Abraham, I will bless. Whoever curses you, Abraham, I will curse. And so that means that Israel enjoys, God's people enjoy a special place in his heart, so much so that your interaction with them, I'm an Old Testament now, um, depends on what kind of reaction you get from God. So let's just go back to, let me illustrate this through the, uh, through the ninth plague. 
If you went back to the end of chapter 10, the last plague, the, the, the last plague before this one, there's this darkness to be felt. God says, I'm going to bring a darkness on the Egyptians. Nobody's going to be able to see anything. You won't be able to get up out of your bed. It will be a darkness to be felt. Have you ever felt darkness before? I remember when I was in elementary school, we would go to DeSoto Caverns or Rickwood Caverns, and there was always this part in the cave tour when they would turn off the lights and you couldn't see a thing, right? Because there's no light coming from anywhere. You can't, I mean, it, like my hand could be right here in front of my face and I really could not see it. That's darkness to be felt. And that's kind of heightened by the idea that in the ancient world, there are, there is no electricity, there are no lights. Like people went to bed when the sun went down because there just wasn't anything else to do. Right. And in fact, the darkness is when bad things happen. Right. Nefarious characters are out in the darkness. And so I guess I just use the word nefarious. Right. Like bad people are out when it's dark. And so you wanted to be inside where it was secure. So how terrifying that God brings a darkness to be felt among all the people. And yet, as it says, there's light in Goshen. That's where God's people. That's the part of the country where God's people are. There's light. In Goshen. Now, I, I want you to imagine, I just, I, we don't have this for sure, we don't know, but I want you to imagine that maybe your house is close to Goshen. And so you can't even get out of bed, right? You can't even move around your house without stubbing your toe. You're having to deal with the fact like you just buried your cattle because they got killed by hail and you just had to clean off your field because all of your crops got devoured by locusts and now you're stuck in the dark. You can't see your wife. You don't know where your kids are. You can't go to work. And then like on the horizon, maybe did they could they see a glow? Could they see that there was light in Goshen? Can you imagine what that would what that would do? What, what an invitation. Right? There's, there's light in Goshen. It's all, it's all darkness here, but there's light over there. The Israelites have light. God's people have light. Their God gives them light. Our, our God has been shut off. Ra has been cut off, but their God gives them light. There's light in Goshen. And I think that's a pretty compelling invitation when you begin to feel the darkness that you're trapped in. Uh, when you feel the weariness and futility of living under a lie. When you see that those who have the Lord, have the truth, have the light. Here's how Matthew describes, this is in the New Testament, here's how Matthew describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that really gets at the point of all of these wonders, of all of these plagues. They're really meant to show us the difficulty and futility of life in a fallen world, and they're meant to point us to a greater hope, that in Jesus there is light, in Jesus there is life. The firstborn in this plague are not the last sons to die. 
there is another firstborn who will die. In fact, he will, he will not be killed. He will give up his life. And that's Jesus. God, this is the way the Bible puts it. God puts his own son to death. So that we can be free of Egypt forever. So that we can be free of our own sin and slavery. Do you believe that? There's light in Goshen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are heavy and